Hello and welcome to Music and Film Saves the World podcast. My name is Chris Rice and today we are talking about Britpop and I'm very honoured to have Paul Aird on the line with me. Hello Paul, how are you doing? Hello Chris, yeah I'm very well, thanks so much for having me, it's very, very kind of you. No, no, and, and thanks very much for coming on, thank you. And um, Paul has um, a book published. I think it came out on the 30th of July. Was that correct? So it's been out just over a week now. Um, called The Birth and Impact of Britpop, Misshapes, Seamsters and Insatiable Ones. And today we're going to talk about um, with Paul about that book um, and also some of his favourite uh, Britpop artists, albums, songs, and any other stuff you'd like to talk about, Paul. So the the floor is yours, uh, so to speak. So um, I've always, you know, myself, you know, one of those, uh, back when I was a bit younger, I always had this insp- uh, inspiring writer and I never managed to get the willpower <laughs> to sit there and do it. So what makes you pick up your pen or turn on your computer and sit down and write a book about Britpop? What what sort of drives you to to do that? Well, I, I guess the, the glib answer is a, a massive ego. Um, <laughs> but I don't I don't I don't think that's actually true. I, I don't think I've got a massive ego. I mean, I don't I don't think for a single second that, that what I've written um, is unique in, in terms of you know you um lots of your friends lots of the people listening to this have also got bands and moments and albums that connect directly to things that have happened in their lives that soundtrack certain moments first love last love birth of kids whatever it might be right yeah um but i think that the thing that really pushed me was the fact that when I started writing, then here I, we have something else in common, Chris. When I first started writing, I didn't write about music. I used to write about film. Right. Um, I had a really dreadful um, film review website. Um, <laughs> and, and I mean, it was <laughs> um, it, it probably still exists on the internet somewhere. I'll, I'll send you a link. Yeah. <laughs> I, that was, I mean, that was probably around about 2010. Right. And... Really, I just wanted to write because I wanted to write. And then that blog incredibly managed to get me press accredited for a couple of film festivals, which then allowed me to write more and to interview people. And I thought, okay, right, great. And then my personal circumstances changed a little bit. Um, And the blog died. And then a few years ago, I sort of decided to start writing about other stuff. And yeah. I thought, well, what do I really care about? You know, there's no point in writing about things that you're not interested in or things that you don't care about. And I thought about music and I started writing about bands and albums and all yeah. that kind of stuff. And then slowly but surely the focus came to settle on Britpop. Yeah. So, I mean, there wasn't any kind of particular drive, you know, that I thought, oh, I've got an incredible story to tell, you know, and the world must hear it. But I felt like I had something to say about this particular era in the first instance. Um, And I felt like I had something to say about it that hadn't already been said by some of the other people who'd written about it. Does that make sense? No, it does. And having read the book and, you know, a a teenager of the 90s myself, 
um, that Britpop era, era was so important for me. I think I was the absolute right age. I was th- so the right age for you know I was um, I was 18 in um, in 1995. You know that that sort of right age. I went to uni in 96. You know I had these friends and sort of grow that that sort of music really I felt it, it, it I found my music I, I was a bit I was a bit late to the party which is often the way with me but <laughs> I found my music and what I enjoyed about your book was the personal the personal insight in it and even though we you know we would have different backgrounds etc I you sort of came came to Britpop how I would. It felt like myself when I, I was reading that, for example, if you see what I mean. So that's what I I liked about it. I liked the it didn't feel like it was someone who was all was in the industry or anything or, you know, they, they were, a you know, a guitarist in the butt of the band, etc. It came from it from a fan's point of view and sort of mixing the well-known names of Britpop with the more obscure or ones who should probably should have had more of the limelight and to be fair to you know to be fair some of those I hadn't heard of I was like oh, I'm gonna have to try and go and find those out I thought that was a good mix because you're you're catering for yes of course there was this these big bands going on but there was also all of this going on in the background yeah well I you know I, I wasn't in a band and I wasn't yeah. a music journalist and I'm not a professional well I was going to say I'm not a professional writer I guess now I sort of am. Yeah. But what I wanted to do was to to tell my story because, and you, you've hit it right on the head, Chris, you're absolutely right. I felt absolutely sure that my story was your story. You know, I was the right age. Um, I had a little bit of disposable income to go to gigs and buy records. I, you know, I was falling in love with girls on university courses or in my case at church sometimes. Yeah. You know, I was able to travel around a little bit. Um, I was the right age for it. I was a little bit older than you, so maybe even more of the right age because I yeah. did have a little bit of money and, you know, I was able to kind yeah. of do certain things. But <clears throat> all of those things hadn't really been done before. You know, there's lots of books about Britpop and there are documentaries about Britpop, but the focus is always, uh, rightly, on the bands. But I, I knew that if I was going to write a book about it, and was going to call it the birth and impact of Britpop, that somebody else has already written the story of how Britpop starts and how Britpop ends. Yeah. I, I, I meant how it was born in my life yeah. and what the impact was that it had on my life. And I, I think, yeah, I mean, again, you've, you've hit the nail on the head. That's a, a universal story, despite the fact lots of the things that I write about in the book are maybe quite unique to me you know the kind of slightly wonky religious background and you know being slightly monastic you know I didn't smoke I didn't drink I didn't do drugs all that kind of stuff but there were other things that are universal to all young people boys and girls girls and boys yeah and and funny enough that was and I've got no religious background whatsoever um but I've never been a smoker I've never been someone who takes drugs and I don't drink that much (laughs) Well, I probably did a little bit more of a teenage years, obviously, but um, it was that's what I also sort of think. I think, you know, you didn't have to do all those things to love all that. And it wasn't, you know, um, I'm not I'm not I'm not saying I was, I'm a goody two shoes or anything like that. But it, 
what I felt was as well that when Britpop came along, I, I felt a little bit vindicated of the stuff I liked before. Um, I early 90s, the band that everybody else were into, Nirvana, REM, even though I do love REM, um, and um, some of the sort of James, the Wonder stuff, some of those bands I liked a bit later on, um, but I didn't like so much at the time. I was still sort of coming out of this sort of rock phase, but the, the band I discovered um, was the Beatles, and I'm a massive Beatles fan. And I, I and I, at that point in time, that early 90s, I was getting Beatles solo albums, Beatles. I'm trying to find ways to get them on tape, saving up my pocket money and buying the odd CD, getting a couple for Christmas birthdays, etc. And I can remember one birthday, I think it was 93, and I knew that everybody would take the mickey out of me. And one person at school said, well, what CDs did you get for your birthday? And I went, well, I got Pet Sounds by the Beach Boys, All Things Must Pass by George Harrison and Meatloaf's Bat Out of Hell. <laughs> and... And I got taken the mickey out of. But then a year or so later, when Britpop really hit, you know, in 94, I know it started earlier, but I can remember at my school, 90, 94 was the, the year, really. Um, and a lot of these bands were saying these type of acts are our our influences. This is what we're influenced by. You know, the Kinks, the Stones, the Beatles, the Beach Boys. Not maybe so much Meatloaf, but... Uh, <laughs> the, um, but I felt a little uh, people of my age then started going back and listening to that type of stuff to see the and I felt a bit more vindicated. Those type of the older bands became from the 60s and 70s became cooler again within my age group. And I think I felt vindicated a little bit at that point. I was like, I told you so. And my mate even said, remember when you used to get taken the mickey for liking the Beatles? And he goes, everybody seems to like them now. I was like, yeah, I know. I, I knew I was right because you, you were listening to Ace of Bass and... <laughs> That cod reggae stuff. <laughs> well, it's, I mean, it's funny. People who who know me will, will know that I am not a Beatles head, right? No, but, I know. I, I, so yeah. I, I'm glad I was sitting down when I listened to the podcast. I'm joking. I'm joking. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you know, just that just wasn't, you know, on on the radar for for me. But you're absolutely right, though, Chris, to talk about the fact that all of a sudden, you know, that kind of classic English storytelling. I mean, I, I've got a friend. <clears throat> who is adamant he's not adamant but he, he is adamant <laughs> that you can really trace the the story of what became Britpop all the way back to Sid Barrett you know and he's he is you you will never dissuade him of that and that kind of classic English sensibility you know an English voice yeah. English influences and and I think there is something in that and I think that, that another influence on all that kind of stuff and again, you'll be all about this because you also talk so much about film. But, you know, a, a lot of those very kind of English films really played a part in influencing yeah. bands, particularly the likes of Blur, who've always had a very kind of cinematic, you know, quality to both their artwork, yeah. the songs and the videos. But, you know, I'm thinking about people like Powell and Pressburger, you know, The Life and Death of Colonel yeah. Blimp or A Matter of Life and Death. You know, I'm, I, I remember in the 90s, Damon Albarn being asked about Quadrophenia. And I was so happy when he talked about the fact that that wasn't what he was watching. You know, he was watching you know, some other, was it maybe Mean Time? Is that maybe what it was? I think it was Mean Time, you know, sort of, Ken Loach, Mike Lee. Anyway, you know, it was some yeah, other yeah. kind of English, you know, working class, social realist piece of filmmaking. 
and I, I think you're right. I think all of a sudden the, the the voices and the influences began to take a much more kind of English sensibility, um, and I, I I think that the way that that was then filtered through what was going on in the 90s created something which, for all the criticisms that can be levelled at, at Britpop, and I make some of those criticisms yes, in the book, yeah. and you know I would make lots more of them publicly, but you know. The truth of the matter is, is that it, at the time, it was really exciting, and it felt really energetic, and it felt really hopeful, um, and we were largely oblivious to some of those, you know, kind of criticisms of it. So I, th- I think you're right to point out, you know, the influence of people like the Beatles. I mean, it'd be churlish of me just to <laughs> to ignore that, right? I mean, they're there. <clears throat> my best, my best friend is a um, um, best man of my wedding is not a Beatles fan at all. And we have had many arguments. <laughs> I, I, I've slightly... T- he, he's either... Um, he's got As he's got older, he's he's either warm to them or he just lets me. <laughs> one of the two. Um, but he, I can remember one birthday, he did ask the guys, oh, get me a Beatles album then. <laughs> so, but, um, but yeah, but yeah, I, I, I could quite understand. But as, you know, as when you get that sort of you discover something and it speaks to you like the Beatles did for me and then Blur did and Oasis did and the other bands around it um I think I think you sort of as you say it's so exciting and in hindsight you can look back at these things can't you and you sort of go well really this wasn't but at the time when you're in it and when you're young it's just fun it's just exciting and it was probably the one of the biggest explosions in music in the UK since the 60s in some respects even though it was very centered on the UK we didn't we didn't really apart from a couple of bands we didn't export it so much as maybe we had done with some of our acts in the past yeah i think that's true i think that is definitely true you know it wasn't the, it wasn't the british invasion of you know sort of 64 to 68 something like that you know the, yeah. the, you know, nobody in America holds Oasis in the same regard as they hold, you know. Quite the opposite. <laughs> yeah, no, there, there just wasn't an audience for it. Not not in any meaningful sense. Yeah. Um, but, yeah, no, you know, it was, yeah, I mean, it's it's very easy to, to look back and be very knowing about these things. And it's, it's fine to acknowledge the sexism or the lack of voices from other minority communities. That's absolutely legitimate. Yeah. And I do that in the book as well. Yeah. But you're right. At the time, we were just kids, you know. And it's 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 very easy for certain former NME and Melody Maker journalists to take this kind of quite snooty, highbrow position. One of my favourite articles that was, has ever been written about Britpop was in the Guardian, about maybe I don't know, maybe four or five years ago. A guy called Michael Han, maybe Michael Han. Anyway, and it was called, you know, something like Did Britpop Cause Brexit? <laughs> the Did Britpop cause Brexit? And the, the answer in the article was no. Um, and, and that answer came within the first paragraph. Yeah. So, you know, that, that's quite revealing about the true motivation for some of the more critical voices of, of Britpop, right? It's, it's not really about criticising Britpop. It's that Britpop becomes this kind of vehicle on which you can hang all sorts of things that you don't like and say, oh, well, you know, wasn't this now? But the truth of the matter was, you know, I wasn't running around waving a Union Jack. I mean, there, there, there's a great there's a great interview in that classic Select magazine, you know, the one that kind of coins the Britpop yeah. phrase. And there's Brett Anderson on the front and the Union flag in the background, you know, and Yanks go home, blah, blah, blah. 
And inside it, at one point, they ask Luke Keynes, you know, kind of what he loves about, you know, Britain or what he, he likes most about Britain. And he pretty much says nothing. Yeah. Don't like anything. And they ask Pete and Bob and Sarah from St Etienne and they start criticising, you know, Britain's attitude towards immigration and refugees. And they ask somebody else and they start talking about, you know, all this awful kind of British movement rubbish that was going on at the point. You know, the bands at the time, you know, they weren't kind of, you know, little Englanders. You know, these were quite sophisticated art school types, right? Most of them were quite well read. Lots yeah. of them liked people like the Smiths and Bowie, you know, they, they were literate people. So there's this weird kind of, there's this weird point of view about Britpop, which is utterly toxic. Yeah. And then the other hand, you've got an equally weird view of Britpop, which is, oh, it's completely beyond criticism. And I think the truth of the matter lies somewhere in the middle, which is kind of where you and I are, which is there was a load of pop bands that we really enjoyed and we had quite a nice time. Shall we move on? <laughs> and, and and with anything it's stuff the albums are always there if you want to go back to them they're always there you know it's you know you and you know when you've got that slight detached quality about them you know great escape and be here now both got five star reviews um they're not five star albums <laughs> i'm not saying i don't enjoy them i i do i enjoy elements of them um but i think that's and I, I liked also the way you sort of touched on that sort of it, it starts and often with scenes like that, it sort of starts that sort of energy, that sort of experience of what's going to happen, the, the excitement. And then sometimes things do get a little bit, the media takes over a bit. It always becomes not too popular, but a certain group of people take over the, the slightly laddish culture that and it sort of starts getting mingled with football and and other things, you know, um, f- films, like you said, but they had that laddish quality started to sort of creep in, especially amongst some of the some of the, the more popular bands, I think. Well, that, that is that is definitely true. Chris. I mean, that, that is undeniable, you know. Um, but again, that's not new, right? No. Like that happened to yep. Madness in the Specials. Yep. In the, the who the who and the stones it happened to the who and the stones and it, it happened even to you know the the, the smiths you yeah. know what i mean that kind of chant of morrissey 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 yeah. that football chant you know that wasn't some kind of postmodern ironic take on male culture that was started by boys like me who were in the crowd for you know morrissey gigs in the early 90s that was because as soon as a band hits a particular point and they're on top of the pops every week and the records are on Radio 1, you draw in another type of audience. And yeah. that type of audience, it happened to the Manics, right? When, yeah. when um, A Design for Life. All those lads started turning up and they weren't wearing mascara and leopard print. You know, they were just there to chuck beer pots when, you know, James starts singing, we only want to get drunk. Yeah. That was the only reason they were there. Yeah. So, you know, that, that has happened to every youth culture movement i mean the original mods you know were not having tear ups on brighton beach the original mods were jazz cats right you know they, they were mm. importing r&b records from the states they were only interested in clothes you know it was it was very arch it was very knowing they were reading you know kind of beat poets and beat novels they were listening to jazz right so and then once it hits a critical point in the media coverage you draw in another type of crowd yeah. and then off in a different direction now it's not necessarily a, a more negative direction 
but it definitely draws in a particular crowd. So, you know, th- what happened to Britpop is just the story of British youth subcultures throughout time. I mean, like, I mean, my background is in skinheads, right? I was a skinhead when I was at school. I was a skinhead at university. I've been a skinhead for a long time. And for me, the most important aspect of being a skinhead is the fact that I've got all these lovely tailor-made clothes, yeah. right? I, I'm not listening to oi compilations that have been put together by Gary Bushel, right? I'm, I'm not interested in that. For me, yeah. it's about clothes and the melding of Jamaican culture and Western culture. You know, it's it's all really it's about being a dandy. Yeah. You know, so yeah. it's, every youth movement has had that experience. So Britpop's no different. I mean, and also the mid nineties for us. I mean, you look at old photos of us all. Um, and we've all got this long hair and curtains. <laughs> it's, it's just ridiculous, really. So like, what on earth? You know, my dad was right when he kept saying to me, just go get your hair cut. But um, the um, the thing is as well, like um, I, I, not that long ago, I watched the Oasis documentary on Nebworth. And it was quite mm. interesting to say that, see that a lot of people that were there said that it was such a great atmosphere there, much more sort of communal atmosphere which went away with Oasis gigs as the years went on. I never went to Nebworth. I know a couple of people that did. Um, but I I saw Oasis on their last ever tour in 2008, and I saw them at Wembley Stadium. I went with my well, girlfriend at the time, wife now. And I must after I came away from that gig, I said to Jenny, I'm not going to go and see Oasis again. I can't what I can't listen to the music. I can't. I'm too worried about what else is going on. Mm. Um, and funny enough, not that they heard me. A couple of months later, they've split up. But uh, <laughs> yeah, but and I've been to see Oasis a couple, a few times in the noughties, Finsbury Park early noughties. Um, Gas came with me on that one actually, and that was fine. I saw them at the V Festival, which was a much nicer cause crowd because you got people that go and see. Oh, I'll go see Oasis. That type of crowd. But the 2008 at Wembley, I'd went to see Take That the weekend before. <laughs> and then that weekend I went to see Oasis and it was a very different atmosphere. And um, I said, I, 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 I just for me, I wanted to listen to the music and I just couldn't. I was more worried about what else was going on and how I looked at someone in a certain way or you know something gets thrown and you're dodging the beer bottles as you say so I think that was one of the sort of unfortunate hangovers especially for the bands that endured um you know and I know there's other bands that probably take on that mantle that uh, that comes on but as you say I think that's always going to happen because a different type of people pick up certain bands and, and run with it and maybe the people that were there originally don't get left behind necessarily but don't feel so part of it as they used to that's why sometimes people go off bands as well I think yeah I think so Chris I think you know part of it as well is you know why are you going to the gig you know and some people go to the gig because they love the band and some people go to the gig because it's a night out yeah um and you know if it's a night out that maybe involves you know certain substances on the top of the toilet um and involves a lot of alcohol and you know gigs are still very male environments and i think if you put a lot of men in a room with coke and alcohol um that's maybe not the environment in which to you know let your inner 
self go and you know, <laughs> whirl whirl gaily around the dance floor, right? Yeah. Um, I mean, I, I, I remember a few years back there was a big incident at a James concert, I think in Hull, which ended up with this mass brawl in the middle of the crowd, you know, and there was blood on the floor and all this kind of stuff. And I remember thinking at the time, in fact, I wrote a piece when I still had the the, the website at that point. I wrote a piece about that gig, even though I wasn't there. I can't imagine any band more dedicated to, you know, the notion of being together, communal living, peace, love, spirituality, and whatever way you want to define that, than James, right? Yeah. I mean, there is a deeply spiritual line that runs through almost all of Tim Booth's writing. Yeah. And and yet, even at their gig, and the, the reason is simple, there were people there who were there for a night out. Yeah. And the fact that James were there was neither here nor there. Yeah. You know? yeah. It was just whoever would have been in that arena that night, that's why they were there. Yeah. And and on the flip side of that, I went to see Swade when they did a series of, uh, at Brixton, I think it was, and when they did a series of gigs, they did the first three albums, the whole whole album, which is a, quite a, a thing that happens these days. It's quite a trend. And they were one of the early ones to doing that. And then they got, got back together, et cetera. And um I think it was before they released any of their new material, but they did. I went to see the first Suede debut album and the atmosphere and the crowd. You couldn't have wished for a better, a better night out watching them. We're all sort of nice, intimate venue. Brixton is, um, you know, they did the whole album, came, went off, came back on and then did a whole lot of B-sides and other hits and all that type of thing. And, when the, the riff of Beautiful One starts, when they first come on from the encore, you know, you can't, you couldn't wish for a better, a good a good atmosphere. And, you know, it's it's funny how sometimes, you know, some bands have that. And sometimes it's the attitude of the band themselves um, as well, where they've come from. People feel they identify with those people. Yeah, well, you know, when it comes to Suede, you know, the, the, the type of people who are, you know, who were maybe dancing around what type of people we're talking about here, but you know th- those those types of lads were never going to be particularly enamoured with a band who had a T-shirt that said "Gay Animal Sex" on the front of it, <laughs> right? Yeah, yeah. Um, it's very true. You know, but Brett Anderson was, you know, I mean, he had every single euphemism thrown at him. Yeah. Um, and it was all code. It happened with Martin Rossiter of Jean as well. It, mm. it was all code. You know, there was all sorts of things about being camp and being this and being that. And the truth of the matter is, you know, they were just seen as being not real men. Yeah. Um, yeah. You know, there was there was there was a definite undercurrent of that. Um, and it's interesting. Lots of the bands I talk about in the book are bands who were a little bit more. I mean, now I'm going to use a euphemism. They were a little bit more effeminate, right? Yeah. Um, there, there was something much less laddish about a lot of the bands that I touch on in the book because, you know, I, I'm not a very good lad. Mm. Um, you know, I like football. Yeah. Uh, you know, I've had my share of, you know, dust-ups. Um, but, you know, I just, I just, it's just not me. Yeah. Um, and and that, that side of the 90s, you know, loaded and all that kind of stuff, it just, it just didn't say anything to me. No. But... Swade certainly did, yeah. Yeah, and Swade actually, one we've stayed together. As I say, I'm always was always a little bit late to the party, but Stay Together was such a big hit. Uh, but I think it ended up being their biggest hit in the UK, uh, and Trash, I think. But that was that was one of the uh, for me when I started sort of noticing these. That For Tomorrow by Blur, mm. 
mm. and Suede Stay Together were two of the very early songs that I'd heard. Yeah. That I sort of thought, hang on a second, there's something here I'm quite liking. Um, um, and actually, that's, you just talking about some of the bands and stuff. So that sort of takes me to my next question, really. So what made you sort of decide on the bands and say, well, I can't, because even at the end, I saw in your epilogue, you sort of said, look, I'm afraid I couldn't use them. I couldn't use them. It's not that I don't want to talk about them, but there's only so many I'll, you could talk about in a book or whatever. So what sort of made you whittle it down to the ones that you did talk about? Well, the, the, the first thing is, if I'm being entirely honest, Chris, is that you get a word count from your publisher. You know, the yeah. publisher say, you know, you can have this many words. Yep. And that's all to do with printing costs and what have you. So that's that's fine. So that was point one. Point two was, and I've discussed this with a couple of people, one of the very first things I did was I went and got John Harris's book, The Last Party, which is yeah. seen as being the, the great Britpop book. Yeah. Um, until now, kids. <laughs> of course. And, <laughs> so I went and I got the index and I looked up all of the bands that I still have records from that I saw in concert and lots of them weren't there mm-hmm. and so then I took that list of bands who weren't covered in John Harris's book and decided that I was going to focus in from that much broader list I mean there are bands that I don't really touch on the book you know people like I don't know Tiny Monroe um, Shampoo would be a really good example you know because I really wanted to write about Shampoo because I knew yeah. it would really annoy people but the, the, <laughs> there just wasn't enough space so I yeah. took those bands who hadn't been covered by John Harris and thought, right, what we're going to do is we're going to put front and centre for the first time ever in print the stories of these bands that kids like me, you know, maybe maybe other kids didn't buy everything by Lick. Yeah. Maybe other kids, you know, didn't like me buy everything by Soda, right? But other people did buy records by those bands or saw them supporting other people, you know. Um, maybe you went along to see Gene in concert. If you saw Gene in concert, then you undoubtedly would have seen, you know, Soda at some point, right? Yeah. So I wanted to take those bands and I wanted to put them on the sort of pedestal that has been reserved for lots of bands that I don't consider Britpop, you know. So I wanted to shift the narrative slightly and talk about these bands who really defined my 90s. Yeah. No, and it's bands like Lick and Soda and uh, Monterey was one, Monterey, one of yeah. Monterey, sorry. Um, I'd never heard of. I'd never heard of it. I was like, I'm going to have to try and find some of these. These, And then, as I said, when I was reading it first time, I was like, I must listen to the Elastica album again. And mm-hmm. like, like, and I, I, I had it on Amazon Prime, uh, on the music, Amazon Music, and I thought, brilliant, I'll, I'll listen to that. And I was reading it and listening to it because I forgot what a great album that is because that's one of the albums, because like you said, because you only save pennies and you buy certain albums, there's some that, not that you didn't want, they just you just didn't get. And as the years go by, you just don't go back and do that. I mean, I did that a little bit with Pulp. I went back and bought a couple of Pulp albums, uh, which I hadn't got. And Elastica was one of the ones that I'd sort of no, not wanting to, it just passed just passed me by, so to speak. So but definitely reading your book, I, I was thinking to myself, I've I want to go and because a lot of these I will there's no doubt I will definitely like. There's just no doubt about it, you know. And one of the bands I think you spoke about with Gaz about too was Saint Etienne. Mm. I know I like them. I just never basically sat down and, <laughs> and listened to them. And, 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 and what I found interesting as well, and the other thing I related to is that you had uh, a friend 
called Chris, wasn't he? It was a good, it was a good mm. name that you'd go and he he'd have the latest stuff. And have you listened to this yet? Have you listened to this there? Well, Gareth was that person for me. He would go, oh, this is this is Supergrass. This is Manson was the one that he he, he, mm. he got me into. I went, to, I saw Manson at, at university when they had their second album out. And I love Manson. And my wife loves Manson, which is quite, quite sort of, because she sort of likes more poppy stuff, but randomly she likes Manson. And, um, and, um, and those type of he, Elastica was one of those, and there was he was be the one that goes, oh, have you heard this yet? Have you heard this yet? And he'd be the one that would, I'd go there. And he always used to have all these CDs out and stuff. He had a paper round, so I could afford a few more. <laughs> <laughs> and um, yeah, so I, I, that's why I said I sometimes was a bit late to the party. I mean, one of my favourite Britpop albums is In It for the Money by Supergrass, which I don't always think gets. I can remember going down to, because I was at the University of Derby, so Derby City Centre with a friend of mine, and her and I both bought some albums, and I bought The Charlatans Telling Stories and Supergrass mm. in it for the money. Both came out the same day. I mean, the albums that used to come out, and I was, in it for the money grew on me, whereas Telling Stories I like straight away, in it for the money grew on me, and it's, it's those type of bands that are in it for the money is one of my favorite of the Britpop albums, one of my favorite albums of all time in it for the money is. And, and it's when you sort of talk about some of those influences, having a friend doing it. And was this, was this, you know, how did you find some of these? Well, at the time, how did you find some of these bands? <clears throat> yeah. Well, I, I had these two friends. There are two guys that I talk about in the book, Chris yeah. Whitehill and Dave Evans. Yeah who were both, you know, very influential on me. But I, I I think really it comes down to the fact that I was this slightly monastic character, you know, because because I didn't smoke or drink or do drugs or any of that stuff. I had a part-time job when I was at uni. I had a part-time job when I was at home. Yeah. I had a bit of disposable income. So I was buying the Melody Maker and NME, I mean, both of them, every week. Yeah. Um, you know, and, and Select Magazine, and, you know, you would see a picture. When it comes to Manta Ray, was it Manta Ray or was it Flamingos? I'm going to get this wrong now. It might, it might have been Manta Ray, but there was an interview with one of those two bands Yeah. where the drummer said something about, you know, how important it was to have good trousers. <coughs> Excuse me, Chris. So the drummer said, oh, you know, the most important thing is to have, you know, good trousers. Mm. And that was the little kind of, you know, emboldened quote that accompanied this tiny little interview strip. And I remember, you know, I hadn't heard that band at that point. And I remember knowing for sure that I had to buy whatever single it was that was accompanying this interview. Because yeah. that that's my kind of band, a band yeah, who yeah. wear good trousers, right? So it was just the fact that I was able to be there. You know, you're listening to the evening session. It was just the fact that yeah. I had disposable income yeah you know, and i would just go and order things from the local record store in kirkcaldy or if, when i was at university in paisley there was a record store called stereo one behind the train station called uh, gilmore paisley gilmore street train station and then i would go and order stuff from there sometimes i would just walk into the record shop and you would see something with a cool front cover like that i think the first thing i ever bought by pulp was lip gloss yeah i hadn't heard pulp i saw the, the front cover Thought it looked incredible. Yeah. So bought it, took it home, loved it. Um, and it really was that simple. And then, you know, you go out to see bands in concert and the, the, the support band and then you buy something from them. And so I just very quickly built up this kind of huge collection of all sorts of things. Sometimes mm. it would just be 
a single and maybe I've built up the collection over the years since but a lot of the times it really was buying all of it right there right then yeah and sometimes you you, you come across a, uh, a gem and sometimes you come across not quite <laughs> not as good as you thought you were going to I suppose yeah. that's uh, a nice way to put it I, and also as I say I can remember Gaz saying to, to me Chris Boyce teenage fan club's album songs from Northern Britain just buy it you'll like it. I know you'll like it and I know a lot of people have uh, their earlier albums as the one, but songs from Northern Britain with um, I Don't Want Control of You, Planets on there. I love all those songs and I love that album. Um, but yeah, I, 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 it, don't, it did sort of resonate with me that that type of sort of finding things. Um, I think the first week of uni, so we're all trying to get to know each other with the people that you've like a big like the big brother house been put in with um and my two best friends come from uni over from from uh, university so it didn't do too bad but i can remember we all went to the one of the union the derby union clubs and and saw space and and they were you know we we're in a very small like bar space for playing um and their album came out a couple of weeks later because we all enjoyed it. I think we all bought the album. You know? <laughs> and, and it was the same with um, Shed 7. And Shed 7 have been going for a, a while anyway and Chasing Rainbows and the earlier stuff I was aware of. But um, they played at our first year university ball, Shed 7 did. And we were so excited. Like, oh, when, they, when the Derby Uni announced Shed 7 are playing, we were like, wow, that's, a, that's really good. We thought it would be. <laughs> and straight that summer after that uh you know i had a i had a summer job that summer and uh i i bought a load of albums that summer because I, I my dad said look put some towards your university but you could have a little bit just to, to to buy it so i remember buying seahorses and okay computer and i had to buy a maximum high by shed seven because i just enjoyed it so much seeing them play at the ball I remember seeing Shed Seven really early doors, but long before Britpop was a yeah. phrase. It was during the whole new wave of new wave thing, which was like the the scene that preceded the scene, you know. Yeah. Um, and I saw them in a little club in Dundee called Fat Sam's. Was it Fat Sam's? I think it was Fat Sam's. And they were supporting a band called Compulsion, um, who were a kind of slightly noisier, slightly punkier outfit. Yeah. And I remember being there really early. I mean, this was a thing for me. I was always really early. At and I remember sort of Rick Witter being at the bar and sidling up. And I, I'm not really an autograph person, but for some reason I asked him for an autograph and he said, well, have you got something I can sign? I didn't have anything that he could sign. I, I don't know why I'd asked for an autograph. And so he, he got a packet of guitar strings. Yeah. And then he said, have you got a pen? I didn't have a pen. So he had, he had to go find the pen. He came back and he, I remember, I, I kept this for years and years, this guitar string packet, and he wrote on it, roll out the barrel, love Rick Witter, <laughs> and, and I handed this over. And I, I remember seeing them that night and just being blown away by them. I thought they were a great live proposition. Yeah. Um, I think it might have been round about the time that that first single, Casino Girl and Mark, yeah. came out. Um, maybe it was a little bit after, maybe it was a little bit before, but it was round about that kind of time period. It was incredible, really. You know, they were second on the bill when you consider, you know, the kind of success that they went on to have and, and continue to enjoy, right? I they mean, do. I, I, I think everybody, Shed Seven is one of those bands that people have come back, sort of come back to and sort of thought, actually, they should have been more popular than they actually were. Because <laughs> they're not saying they weren't popular, but 
maybe they should have even gone a bit bigger than they actually were. And I know their Shed Semba stuff they do mm. every couple of years does really well. I, their more recent, the album they released a few years ago, I really enjoyed, especially the single Room in, in My House. I thought it was a cracking, a cracking comeback single. So, no, they were... They were one of those bands that, you know, we, we saw. And Manson was another one I, I saw at, uh, in, in Derby, not at the university. They played, they did a tour for their second album, Six, which is a, which is a strange affair, that second it album. Yeah. <laughs> um, but they weren't a conventional band, uh, Manson. And that's one of the reasons why I liked them. They, they weren't a conventional sort of band. They did things that were weird. They... I've always been fan. This is the Beatles influence again. I've always been fan of songs that go into the next one and feel like that someone sat there and gone, right, what order are we going to put these tracks in? And I always like that. I, I feel that you feel like you're really listening to an album. Um, but have you ever been, so when you sort of, you've, you've obviously sort of met a few of the, some of these, some of the people, et cetera. Is there any mm. time you've been really starstruck? with with someone you know one of someone you've met or interviewed or got autographs from yeah um right okay have i ever been uh starstruck um you know there's a great book by a guy called robert byrne uh, it's called alma cogan now alma cogan was this kind of english singer in the 1950s she was called yeah. the girl with the laugh in her voice yeah and what byrne does in the book is he creates this kind of it's a bit like The Damned United. Do you know that book about Brian yeah. Clough? Yeah. So he, he creates a kind of world around Alma Cogan. And at the beginning of the book, she's describing the way in which men approach her to ask for autographs. And they're all kind of very full of bravado. And they, But as soon as they put their arm around her, she can feel them kind of quivering a little bit, no matter yeah. how leery they might be. So yeah. I think it would be a lie to say that I haven't ever been starstruck right you know fame has a weird impact on people yeah. um but I, I don't think anybody has ever you know kind of rendered me speechless i can remember i'm not a brit pop person but my major obsession for a long time was morrissey like yeah for the longest time yeah and i remember meeting morrissey backstage at the Barrowlands in glasgow i've met him a few times because my friend was his guitarist i'll i'll leave it nameless through that guitarist <laughs> for fear of libel laws um, but I remember being backstage at the Barrowlands and before going backstage to meet Morrissey my friend saying look don't speak to him <laughs> don't look at him yeah. if he speaks to you don't ask him questions let him yeah. ask you questions it was like getting an audience with the Queen yeah and I remember going backstage and I was all suited and booted and, you know, I was there with um, my then partner. Mm -hmm. And Morrissey came shuffling over rather wonderfully. He was dressed in an old man's cap and a cardigan and I couldn't have wished for anything more. And he, he came over and he said, uh, do you watch Take the High Road? And I, I, said, well, I don't know if you know, Chris, but Take the High Road is this very dodgy old Scottish soap opera. I mean, yes, really yeah, I was thinking, well, well, yeah, I, I was, yeah, I, yeah. I was just thinking, I recognise the name of it. What, what is it? But yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so he, he says, uh, do, do you watch Take the High Road? And I, I said, I'm afraid we don't have Take the High Road anymore, Morrissey. We, we, it's we the have... crossroads. It's the crossroads of Scotland. Yeah. <laughs> we, have, we have something called River City. Do, do you know of that? 
And he said, mm, no, I don't like that. I like Take the High Road. I like Mrs. Mack. He was this weird character. I mean, he really knew his stuff. Yeah. Um, and, and then he sort of said to me, uh, how, how long have you been together looking at this girl I was with? And I said, oh, about, um, about four years, Morrissey. And he said, looking her up and down with barely disguised contempt. Um, and he said, mm, too long, time for a change. And then he just turned and walked away. And uh, <laughs> there, 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 there is a zinger at the end of that story, which involves infidelity on the, the part of that person. But what, what I remember thinking at that moment was I wasn't starstruck, but he was everything that I wanted him to be in that moment. Right. Yeah. He was cutting and witty and weird and peculiar. <laughs> and I know all the, the reasons why, you know, people have a, a problem with Morrissey and in fact why I now have a problem mm. with Morrissey but at that moment in time uh, my younger self that was yeah. the, the perfect pop star encounter I really yeah. loved that too long time for a change I love it <laughs> it's just as you say it's exactly what you wanted him to say something you know I suppose at first it was like it was your typical eccentric pop star it sort of went from talking about soap operas to <laughs> who your next partner should be That's it's <laughs> <laughs> amazing and, and were there any bands that you cut out of the book that you're like oh i wish I, if i did a volume two they'd definitely be in there yeah yeah I, I think i would have said something more about denim yeah so i touch on denim right at the beginning but that's that, that is a major regret you mm-hmm. know I, I i should have spent a lot longer talking about denim um and saint etienne and the auteurs, you know, th- th- those three bands are all kind of touched on almost in the prologue and they're just kind of left dangling. You know, yeah. I, I don't give them the time and the space and the credit that they deserve. Now, of course, all of those people will be delighted about that. Like Luke Haynes doesn't want anything to do with the, the world of Britpop. Mm. And I understand exactly. Yeah. Pete, Bob and Sarah, they don't need it. Um, yeah. And Lawrence... I mean, I guess Lawrence would probably enjoy being put at the centre of, of, of that story. Um, but the, the, the truth is, I didn't feel like I knew enough to, to have written something more than I did. But if there is a revised edition or if there's a volume two, then I think they would certainly have, have much more. Um, Tiny Monroe. Another band that I really loved, yeah. um, the Long Pigs. Um, there was yeah. there was a, there was a whole section about Long Pigs in the book already, and my editor suggested taking it out, and not because you know the Long Pigs don't deserve their place, but because what I'd written really wasn't very good. Yeah. Um, you know, it was it, it was interesting, but it didn't really say anything about the band. You know, yeah. it, was, it, it was too much about my kind of mental health and. It was just a weird, it didn't fit. It didn't yeah. fit. So I think I would like to go back and do something more about um, the long pigs. I think I would like to write something about shampoo. I really loved shampoo. Mm. I think shampoo are one of the, the, the great you know, pop bands of the 90s. Um, I think they, they should have been just as big as the Spice Girls. Yeah. Um, I think probably Biss, another yeah. Scottish band. You know, yeah. There's a very short yeah. chapter at the end of the book about Scotland's contribution. But all of those bands, you know, I, I could have written more. I wanted to write more about Whiteout, and I, I worked really hard to try and find somebody from Whiteout that I could speak to. Yeah. And 
they had just disappeared off the face of the earth. And now, interestingly, this week, their two albums have been re reissued on vinyl by Demon Music, and there's a Twitter account has sprung up, a sort of fan account, and so I wonder if there might be the chance to do something about them. Um, oh, I mean, I don't know, maybe it would be interesting to do something about some of the the European bands, you know, the Wannadies, yeah. Ardigans. Yeah, because well, there's a lot of bands, and actually I spoke about this in our Britpop one, because that was a question I sort of, really fascinates me. There's bands... British bands and international bands that really benefited from the Britpop Definitely. explosion. I think bands like the Beautiful South benefited from the Britpop mm -hmm. explosion. I think a little bit, things like Wet, Wet, Wet and all that, with all, some of the stuff they did around 94, 95 benefited from some of the Britpop. The bands are, I, I, I really, it's really fascinating. You too, I think, had a, a little bit of a resurgence because of Britpop, the Prodigy uh, was as well, uh, the Chemical Brothers, uh, all sort of bands that you wouldn't associate necessarily with that scene. And the Cardigans, the Wannadies, um, Garbage in a way. I know, I know, I know Shirley, I know Shirley Benson is, is, is British, but uh, I, I think there's a load of bands that, I think people mistakenly think were Britpop bands because a lot of them were on the Shine compilations and all that type of thing. Well, technically, they weren't British if if you want to have if they have to be British sort of thing. So I, I find that really fascinating that sort of bands that suddenly had been around for a while and never had as much success as you thought. Then suddenly, the Beautiful South, for example, are having massive number one albums and all that type of thing in the mid '90s and all that. Well, there was there was definitely a, a it wasn't just and I, I hate this phrase, and I'm, you know, I hate the fact that I have to use it. It wasn't just guitar music. That <laughs> anything, you know, <laughs> that, that, there, yeah. there was a lot of other stuff going on. You know, it was it was just a great time in terms of yeah. music and, and film and television. Yeah. Yeah. There's a great book by a guy called Matt Glasby called Britpop Cinema, and he kind of charts the resurgence in British cinema in the 90s and on into the start of the noughties as well a little bit. But, you know, there were some... Great films made during that period and train spotting. <laughs> yes. <laughs> I tell you, I was one of the only I was one of the only students that didn't have that poster, that and Pulp Fiction poster on the wall. I had the Star Wars one. I wasn't going to uh, <laughs> I wasn't gonna back down on that. But uh, yeah, yeah. Um but yeah, I I I find it I find it fascinating that sort of that sort of period because also it not killed off that's that's too harsh a word but it didn't people like that were fame some of the people that were famous end of the 80s early 90s i'm thinking phil collins mm. i'm thinking uh maybe rod stewart cliff richard people who were still getting top 10 hits and top 10 albums Britpop really dampened their career because radio one obviously started stop playing a lot, a lot of those older artists they were sort of and and then some of the Britpop artists would be going like oh they're rubbish don't listen to them you want to listen to the stuff from the sick bowie and and stuff and i i and i know a lot of those artists have actually come back and had much more of a surge and are, are much more um um people think more more highly of them again yeah. um but it, it's fascinating to me how it was almost like the media and other bands and people sort of picked and choosed who would carry on and be cool and who necessarily wouldn't. Tom Jones carried on being cool and all that type of thing. But then obviously people like Phil Collins may not have done, you know, it really fascinates me that period. 
Well, you know, the, you use the right word there, Chris. You know, it's about cool. You know, and, and I mean, it's a totally meaningless word, of course. But you know, the the music industry by the time you get to '92, you, you remember that episode or episode? Remember that year when Sam Fox and Mick Fleetwood did the the Brit Awards? <laughs> Right. I think um, I watched it. I think. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I mean, you, you, you can't, you know, be the music industry, which is meant to be the voice of young people. I mean, we know that's nonsense, but you know, yeah. it, it, you can't have your finger on the pulse and carry on, you know, pushing that. You know, there's only so many years that you can have Annie Lennox and Kate Bush as the best British female vocalist. Now, yeah. the truth of the matter is, they are the best British female. Yeah. Vocalist, but you know, if, if you want to stay relevant, and so as much as the Britpop bands needed the music industry the music industry needed something you know yeah. and i think they thought they had it with the baggy thing yeah and then you know grunge arrived but neither of those things kind of took root in the way that Britpop did and, and yeah maybe, maybe that's because both Britpop, you know certainly Britpop wasn't as dangerous as baggy you know there, there, there aren't very many people in the the Britpop scene who are as you know dangerous as sean ryder right <laughs> Um, most most of the people in Britpop bands could be put on television. Mm. You know, Sean Ryder's now a national treasure. <laughs> that's right. That's right. Who, who saw that one coming? Um, so yeah, I think it, it was a, a perfect um, a perfect storm, right? Everything was just queued up for the for this moment to kind of take place. And you're right, it definitely draws in other acts and bands. You know, there's an American band called Eels who I think are a yeah. Britpop band. Yeah. You know, but it also has this ripple effect of allowing certain other bands to maybe you know sell more records for the film industry you know to kind of make hay while the sun is shining so there was a whole lot of stuff going on yeah I mean I've got I mean when I did my top 10 and um and I know actually when we did our top 10 Britpop albums I think Gaz had the the um the the band you were talking about did she said she said long pigs long pigs uh, long pigs um yeah, I think he had their album at number number one. He could, or he definitely had that high in the top ten of his one of his favourite Britpop albums. But the one one of the ones I put in were, and are they Britpop? Are the Lightning Seeds? Jollification mm. was an album that my, my friend was a fan of. The Lightning Seeds when they their first album, I think it was nineteen eighty nine. I think, but their Jollification album I came out ninety four. I think ninety five maybe, and I used to I had a. It, he taped it for me I had it on tape and I used to play that loads I loved that album and for me that was one of the highlights of the Britpop scene like it seems jollification and and stuff so I think it's also what sometimes it's what you make of it as well what you class as this and and, and stuff I think it it, it has a certain sort of ownership to it as well well there's a thing that I say in the author's note at the very start of the book about you know the fact that th- this book is not the story of Britpop because the story of Britpop doesn't exist yeah. and it's it's not for me or anybody else to say what is and what isn't Britpop and I certainly don't do that in the book mm. right I say this was what my Britpop experience was because it's silly right you know I mean it's is it just British pop music in which case yes the Spice Girls have to be part of it yeah which by the way I would have no problem with or, you know, it also means you have to include the lightning seeds. Well, yeah, but, you know, Ian Brody has been around since about 1983. Yeah. Right? Yeah, yes, yeah, yeah. He's a pivotal figure in British pop music. So, you know, and also it then means you have to include the Stone Roses and you have to yeah. include this and that. So really it's it's a silly d- debate that, I mean, I've been sucked into that debate online. Yeah. 
on more occasions than I would care to admit, because it does not reflect well on me that I allow myself to get sucked into it. But <laughs> it's good fun, right? Yeah, it is. The, the truth of the matter is, if, if you loved it, Chris, and if it was part of your experience of that cool Britannia Britpop era, then it goes in. Yeah. It goes in, and it's not for anybody else to be dismissive of it, right? Like I, I'm, I've got no interest in ocean colour scene or cast um, or not, not really people like Dodgy even either, you know, the, the, the seahorses. They're fine, you know what I mean? A lot of great yeah. singles from all those bands, even Oasis, I'm not a huge fan of. Yeah. But I'm certainly not going to start telling people that they can't have them in their Britpop top yeah. 10, right? Um, they wouldn't be in my Britpop top, top 10, but that's a personal thing. So, you know, I mean, it's good fun. Yeah. But ultimately, it's nonsense. I know. And I mean, when, as I say, I'll talk heart back to uni because that's when I had um, a friend, Melissa, above. She was in the room above. She used to always play Echo Belly, Blur, mm. Sleeper, etc. I'd be playing. I loved Cooler Shaker's first album. I was. I still buy Cooler Shaker. I bought Cooler Shaker's new album the other the last month. And I, I loved the Cooler Shaker's album. And then, the, next, um, the uh, guy next door, um, who's, well, as I say, once again, one of my best friends, loved Radiohead at the time. So he was always all about the Benz and OK Computer and the slightly more miserable stuff. And um, But I've seen debates on in magazines, different ma- magazine articles. I think Q, I saw one, um, maybe The Enemy as well, about when Britpop started, when Britpop ended. I've seen, I think Q said Britpop ended when Gareth Southgate missed the penalty in Euro 96. <laughs> Another That's person, great. I know, I, I, I was like, no, it went on longer than that, because it, it was definitely on when I was at uni. But um, and then another person, which I think actually has got a valid argument, um, just due to more of the mood of the nation more than anything, was when Princess Diana died. And mm. the re- and albums, Oasis's album had just come out, Be Here Now, which was this big overblown sort of, drug-fueled rock album and then when she died it's no, i don't think it's any coincidence that okay computer and urban hymns by the verve was such big hits that much more somber and wh- whatever you feel of what happened with that the, the nation going a bit crazy or not at that time that was another article that i've seen so that's when it ended but i think things just have this natural move on. I don't think there's ever a stop point going, Britpop ends now. Otherwise, you know, otherwise Blur and Oasis wouldn't have been having, and, and Pulp in some respects, wouldn't have continued on having number one albums. Some bands, Kuda Shaker's one of them, had this massive first album, the second album flopped, and that was only a couple of years later. So I think the Spice Girls sort of changed, changed the, 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 the sort of flow. The press found another, another, the next thing and i think we sort of went into that much more pop direction that the late 90s early noughties sort of went into is in more what you would call real sort of pop like the spice girls and it was westlife and in Boyzone and all those type of steps all those were massive at the end of the 90s and that was i don't know whether they would have been so much mid 90s it's difficult to say it's as you say it's everything with hindsight yeah that's right i mean you know that I think most people talk about the last sort of Britpop album being Pulps, This Is Hardcore. Yeah. And I, I think the reason people take that, and I, I tend to agree with that, if I'm being honest, is because it, it captures 
some of the mood of what you're talking about, that slightly more melancholic, uh, melancholic, sorry, um, more sombre mood of the country. There's the dawning realisation that New Labour maybe weren't what we thought they were going to be. There's the death of Diana, yada, yeah. yada, yada. Yeah. So I, I, I think, you know, Britpop can't just be about the music. It has to be about, you know, the, the, the culture that, that kind of put that music front and centre. And once the culture begins to shift, then that label largely becomes redundant, you know. And I, I know people, particularly online, people really love talking about, you know, this new band or that new band being, you know, the start of a revival. You know, personally, I don't want a Britpop revival. Yeah. Um, you know, I've, I've got no interest. I, I want these kids to have their own moment, you know, yeah. whatever that might be. I mean, ideally, it wouldn't involve, you know, battered old copies of Definitely Maybe. Ideally, it would be, you know, something else. But yeah. I think once the once the mood began to change at the end of the 90s, and it was political, it was cultural, you know, it, it, everything, everything began to just take on board a much less hopeful tone. Yeah. And then certainly by the time you get to the, you know, the invasion of Iraq and post 9-11 in the early part of the noughties, yeah, you can forget it. You know, you, you yeah. can't you can't you can't release an album like Park Life in the aftermath of something like that. So no. yeah. I, I've always feel that there was a and and as you say, I, I think, you know, a revival people keep thinking wanting the revival of stuff. It happens. You're not going to get a revival of the sixties. You're not going to get a revival of the seventies. You'll get people harking back to it and use it in its inspiration. But I think the mid noughties there was a slight sort of increase in some of the British bands again. I think we saw Arctic Monkeys come mm. through. I think Stereophonics became a bit more popular mm. again. Kaiser Chiefs, um, Coldplay got became massive. Very different to what was going on mid nineties, but I think there was a slight sort of muse as well. These were just coming off my head, uh, razor light, these sort of bands. So it started looking like something was happening, but it just sort of quickly went down the other way again. And, and nobody well, ever the, called it Britpop. I don't think the media clicked no. to it because it had already happened. We don't need it again. And, and also the industry had changed as well. Yeah. Chris, you know, you, you, you're at the start of the streaming era, you know, you've got Napster allowing people to access music, you know, okay, illegally, but, you know, to access all of recorded music. And and so, you know, you, you're never going to get that again. What you're going to yeah. get is little kind of micro scenes, um, you know, it's just it's just not going to happen in that way. And, and you know, that the, there's a certain amount of sadness involved in that, I guess, because, you know, I would quite like some of the young people I know now to, you know, have that kind of cultural experience, but they're having different types of experiences. Yeah. You know, they're, they're, they're having their own mini revolutions. So, you know. Yeah. I mean, it's the, th- it's the, it's the same thing as streaming, isn't it? It's something, it's something was quite special about watching something on the TV, recording it on t- video, watching that same episode again and again, and having to wait till the next week. Whereas now you could just, I'll just go to the next one. <laughs> you can watch a series within, within a day, but, um, I think I think it's also good though. We have a sort of a revival in a different way because we now have this vinyl revival. We're getting albums that were never released on vinyl, really, or very small, limited number of copies, yeah. finding a new home on vinyl. And people like myself will go, "Oh, I'd like I I want in it for the money on vinyl." And um, I want um, I got Dodgy's Free Piece Suite not that long ago as well and i bought this is hardcore on on vinyl as well which was it's in a lovely double record and it's got the b-sides on the fourth side and all that type of thing and i think that's in some ways that's a revival that's that's sort of you're able to relive your youth by by sort of buying it in a different format a much more a, a very collectible format and 
I think that's in some respects people in a you know younger generation are buying these small record players and going out and some of them I know just buy them they haven't even got a record player which is which is madness I mean when I go I mean we haven't got an HMV in Peterborough anymore so the closest um, sort of record sort of chain record store we got is Fop in Cambridge and when you go in there it's so much vinyl it's unbelievable but it's not all old fogies like me it is young people going through there there was when I went in there last there was um, she asked someone in the shop oh have you got this he went back and got it and when she got it she was so excited that they had this particular record and you sort of think that's good that's good you know there is still something in that physical media it's different it's different yeah but still there in some respects it's it's, it's, it's important that you know there is that kind of physical relationship with things because otherwise you know what we're going to end up with is a kind of tiktok music industry where yeah. you know songs will last 30 seconds you know songs will be a chorus you know it's important that you know you have a physical relationship that, that there is something that you have to invest in the yeah. music you know you so see it's something physical that you can pick up and hold yeah you have to push a button to make it play and you have to have speakers and yada yada it can't all just be done you know through touching a screen um but yeah so yeah well i mean as i say we moved we moved house last last year. This is the this is the room that we still have stuff where we haven't done anything yet. And all of those are my CDs. <laughs> we're having a we're having something built so I could put my vinyl and CDs, and I can't <laughs> wait to have that. So, <laughs> but uh, yeah, I mean, I've always been a big fan of the physical stuff. But um, yeah, um, so generally, I always I, I, we try and do some sort of ranking, and, and mm. you know, we talk about. Um, now this might be putting you on the spot and so you can, you can sort of say, look, I can't rank them or anything like that, but have you got, what would you say your five go-to Britpot albums of all time? So if you had an all-time sort of list and go, right, I'm going to write my top five Britpop albums, which ones would, do you think would be on there? Right. Okay. Let's, let's have a think about this then, Chris. So I'm just opening up a little... Uh, pages document here so that I can write them down as we talk about them. Right. So yeah. I definitely have um, Plastic Jewels by the Flamingos. Okay. Um, so the Flamingos, for anybody who, who is unaware, the Flamingos were these two brothers, James and Jude Cook from Hitchin. Um, great writers, twin brothers, good looking guys. Um, and they released two albums, but the, the, the album is this album, Plastic Jewels. And it contains all of the singles that people might know, including the the one record that I believe to be the greatest single of the Britpop era, which was this record called Disappointed, Mm. um, which is just, people can get it on YouTube, but the the album's not available on any of the streaming sites yet, although there was a cryptic tweet the other day that suggests it might be on its way. Um, But Disappointed is a wonderful British pop record. It's got lyrical references to things like Exchange and Mart in there. It's got woohoos in the chorus. Um, it's got a beautiful front cover. Uh, this photograph of these two girls in a nightclub in about, I'm going to say, 1983. You know, it's just, it's brilliant. It's a great, great single. That's a great, great album. Um, if, if people don't have that, you can pick it up on things like Discogs and what have you. Um, I, I am campaigning hard to get somebody to reissue it again on vinyl because it, it deserves to be 
heard and seen and owned by people. So Plastic Jewels by the Flamingos would definitely be in there. Cool. Um, there's an album by another band that, again, I'm so sorry, this is going to make me sound like that, you know, wanker in the common room. <laughs> only, only picked records that nobody else had heard. <laughs> but there's a, there's, a, there's a record by a band called Thurman, who most people who have got an interest in the era will know. Thurman were originally a, a sort of heavy rock band based in the States called To Die For. And they're a big MTV sort of hit. They had this video hit record. Mm-hmm. Um, and then the tide began to move against grunge and they rebranded themselves. They're from um, Oxford. Um, lead singer is a guy called Nick Kenny, who, again, was a really good looking guy, like really mm-hmm. handsome. Um, and they had this album called Lux. And it's got some brilliant brilliant pop moments on it um they had a great single called english tea which i mean does anything get more <laughs> pop than that you know the front cover is like a, a tea a, a sort of um what do you call the thing you put over the a, a tablecloth there you go yeah, yeah um that's right everybody i'm a professional writer a tablecloth <laughs> And it's got a, a ring mark from where a cup of tea has been lying on it. I mean, that is so Britpop, right? Yeah, it is. And that album is littered with great little pop songs. And it's, I describe it quite often as being like a sort of Britpop jukebox because each track on it sounds like another classic English pop group. So there's a track on it that sounds a bit like Blur. There's yeah. a track on it that sounds like Mott the Hoople's All the Young Dudes. You know, it's just a great, great little taster of what, was going on in the 90s is it brilliantly produced is it brilliant writing no but it's a great pop record so Lux by Thurman so is that that sounds like right up my street both of those albums sound right up the street so I, 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 I'm going to try and hunt them out myself I think yeah well you, you you'll find them on YouTube tonight Chris yeah I mean, so yeah. and then you can start hunting them down on things like Discogs and what have you right so yeah. Plastic Jewels and Flamingos Lux uh, Thurman by Lux. I would probably throw in as well. Yeah, I think I would probably have to have um, this World in Body by Marion. Right. Um, so that's the first Marion album. Um, just because that darker side of Britpop was really important to me. Yeah. Uh, Marion, you know, Jamie Harding, tortured soul man, really tortured soul. You know, he's 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 got his demons. Um, he's had problems with um, certain substances yeah. over the years. Um, I, I saw him maybe five or six years ago. He, he did sort of three or four live dates. He came up here to Edinburgh. I saw him in this tiny little club with a gaggle of young musicians. They, they rattled through all the Marian hits. Mm. Sleep, time... The only one. I mean, it was it was just a brilliant, brilliant night. Violent men they played. It was just great. And I got to meet Jamie afterwards, and we had a real connection. You know, we we I'd written a piece about them on the website, which now is a big part of the chapter on Marion in the book. You know, and the two of us hugged, and we had this real, just a real moment, a real connection. He's you know he's a beautiful soul. It's yeah. A, Bad things have gone on in his life, but he's a great character. Um, and of course, the, one of the guitarists in the band, Phil Cunningham, now plays for New Order, um, so a terrific musician. Yeah. I, I saw Marion supporting Morrissey um, <laughs> in about 1995, and the, the crowd were sort of chanting for Morrissey all the way through. And Jamie sort of got to the end of a song and he said, you know what, you'll all be paying X amount of pounds to see us headlining in about six months. 
And he was right. He was absolutely right. They were phenomenal. So this world embodied by Marion. Um, do you know what? I'm gonna I'm gonna break my own music wanker rule, and I'll pick something that people have heard of, right? So I'll take your reference from earlier, Chris. That that Elastica album, the first Elastica album, um, is just start to finish flawless. Yeah, it's great. It's a great totally album. Flawless. It is. It's a great album. And just it's a shame they did. They shame they didn't follow it up quicker. It's so strange how some of these bands, you know, they 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 took they took their chance and go, right, like Blur did, right, we're going to release one in 93, we're going to run 94, 95, we're <laughs> going to take it by the hands, every single will be prolific, and then just the odd band, like, it, it almost took too long, and when you've done a big first album, I always think, there are exceptions, there are exceptions, of course, I always think if you've done a big first album, you've got to follow it up as quickly as you possibly can, two years is the got to be the the max you got to leave it but uh it's I, I think you know we just talked about jamie harding and, and and certain substances i think unfortunately by the time you get to 95 96 a, yeah. l- a lot of those london bands if rumors are to be believed and, and who am i to confirm or deny those rumors, yeah. right? a lot of those bands were experimenting with uh heroin yeah uh, i i don't think that that's particularly conducive to creativity no um you know so but no i'm not for a single second suggesting that's what happened to elastica not for a second but i i think there was a culture in london at that point particularly in london um where and also those kids have had huge record deals offered to them you know yeah um but you know i really like the second elastica album the menace i, I think it's really great i think it's weird and kind of wonky mm-hmm. and peculiar but that first album um, is just flawless and you know Justine Frischman's an iconic figure um, so we'll, we'll pop Elastica in there so who have we got Chris we've got the Flamingos we've got Thurman we've got Marion we've got Elastica right okay let's do one more but I'm allowed to change my mind tomorrow right of course of course I've, right. I, I was looking at my I was looking at my list that I because I had to I had to try and remember it myself and I could see all my honourable mentions that I didn't put in I was like I didn't put Attack of the Grey Lantern by Manson in. Uh, <laughs> I've chosen Coming Up by Swade instead of Dogman Star and uh, <laughs> uh, and all that type of thing. So, yeah, you could change your mind whenever you right. want. Well, in, in that case, I'll, I mean, it's, it's very difficult for me because although, you know, I've got quite a wide range and interest in music, you know, and in fact, there's a lot of music that I love more than a lot of the Britpop stuff but this music just means so much to me but there are certain albums which are central to what happened to me in the 90s and so i'll make my fifth album the debut album from suede yeah um i can remember buying it when it came out on the day of release i I remember in fact before it came out i was in my bedroom and radio one played a recording of suede live I think maybe the Riverside in Newcastle, it was certainly a Newcastle gig. And, you know, I was hunched over recording off the radio. I remember seeing them the first time they they played here in Edinburgh. Um, and that was a, a life-changing moment, to be honest with you. Um, and then I remember buying the album on the day of release yeah. and sitting in my then girlfriend's um, sitting room had this old record player and the two of us kind of huddled together on the sofa pouring over the lyrics and looking at the front cover and just being convinced that you know this was our band you know this was our 
Bowie. This was yeah. our the Smiths, you know. That it felt that important, and I, I stand by that. I still think it's a, a great, great album. I know Dogman Star is is the album, really. It's a great work of art. Yeah. I know that coming up is the great pop record, right? But for me, Suede is. It was more than just an album. It was like a manifesto. It was like, right, look, this that we're here now. We're changing the language of pop music. We're going to talk about amyl nitrate. We're going to talk about breaking your bones. We're going to talk about gay sex. We're going to talk about living in a high-rise estate. We're going to talk about hopelessness. You know, it was nihilistic. It was, it was just phenomenal. Right. And, so and they and they managed to do that, Swade, mm. with pop hooks, and exactly. made the songs memorable. So even exactly. if you even if what they were talking about completely went over your head, passed you by, you didn't care, whatever, you had still these great pop hooks. I, I mean, Sci-Fi Lullabies, which I got the Christmas it came out, is could be the best B-side album of all time because it's better than some of their. <laughs> it's, it's brilliant. It's brilliant. Well, the, the 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 first the first twelve tracks on that could be the best album of all. Yeah, time. it's it's, it's brilliant. It's, it's so good. Um, right now. You want me to rank these, though, Chris, right? Um, if, if you feel like it, Paul, if you feel if you're up for the challenge, then. <laughs> right. OK, off off the top of my head, we'll put at number five, we will put um, Lux by Thurman. Yeah. Number four, we'll do This World and Body by Marion. Number three, we'll do Elastica. Number two, Plastic Jewels by the Flamingos. And number one, Suede. There you go. I think that's a good choice, Paul. I think that's a good choice. Is there anything that um, you wanted to talk about that I may have I may have missed out or some uh, about your book, uh, etc. That I haven't I haven't brought up? Oh no, no. I think I think you've you've uh, you've given me ample opportunity to talk about that, Chris. I'm just I'm I'm glad that you've read it and I'm glad that you've enjoyed it. Um, that's uh, that's that's why you do it, right? Yeah. Oh well, it's as I say, it's a special it's a special time for me, and I and I love the way that. It was so rich. The music was so rich, and there was so much of it. We can all come away. Yes, we agree on some, but we can disagree, and we have totally different things, as I said, coming from it, you know, etc. And I think that's great. So, um, Paul's book is available now. It's called, and I just I do write it down. It's a nice long title. It's the birth and impact of Britpop, misshaped scenesters, and insatiable ones. It's available now from bookshops, from all your amazon from all your other places where you can buy your books um and where can people find you on social media paul if they want to yeah so i am mild mannered max on things like uh, am i mild mannered max on instagram i don't know but on twitter <laughs> i'm mild mannered max and that's where i spend most of my life <laughs> yeah, I, I tell you you did, max. you did a great tweet about erasure because i love erasure <laughs> Of course you do. I loved Erasure. That that was that pop first twenty hits. Um, we bought it for my cousin for Christmas. He had asked for it. We bought it, and in those days, it weren't sealed, were they? The CDs, because you'd have it. Let's say you got it from our price. They would put the CD in and give it to you. So I taped it before we wrapped it up, <laughs> and I so, loved it. I absolutely loved that pop first twenty hits. And uh, well, and look, what, what we can do is we can we can have a. You, you can have me back with uh, Gaz and we'll, we'll rank um, Erasure's, you know, sort of best singles. Yes. Yeah. So I had the Aberesque EP on vinyl. Wonderful. <laughs> um, so, yeah. Paul Laird, thank you very much for joining. That's, it's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you. Um, nice, Chris. Thank you. And uh, 
This is Music and Film Saves the World podcast. We'll be back very soon. Thank you for listening. We'll see you next time. <laughs>